John 5, starting in verse 18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. For the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. He told you so from the very first verse, it's been clear who Jesus is. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. It sounded good at the time. It is good. But as the implications become clearer, as we see Jesus interact more and more with others, doesn't it become just a bit harder to accept? Jesus said to his mother, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Then in the temple, he made a whip of cords and he drove them all out of the temple, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. We have this idea of a Jesus that we like. And we really like some of the things that Jesus can do for us. But still... Rather than imitate Jesus in situations like these, there's a part of us convinced that there are more moderate ways to honor God. We don't want to deny Jesus. We'd never say that. But we know God, and we're just humans. So it's understandable that from time to time, we might look for positions that seem less extreme and less absolute than Jesus seems inclined to do. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. We hear you, Jesus. But we also know that putting such a high and exclusive standard out there and expecting people to respond is going to be a tough sell. Your approach asks a lot of people. 
And maybe, just maybe, we'd like to follow a different way. We're not denying Jesus. But we would like to tone things down just enough so that people are able to receive him. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. The disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. To us, it seems rather antithetical to compassion. Reading these encounters, our first instinct is to understand where these people are coming from. Yes, they may lack theological precision. Yes, they may be inconsistent in their thinking, but they're just people like us. Can't we be reasonable? Here was an official whose son was ill. He went to Jesus and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. (laughs) And then afterward, after a time, Jesus found the invalid man he had healed in the temple, and he said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. He told us so. From the very first verse, We've been clearly told who Jesus is. But even so, isn't it easy to try and make him into something else? Isn't it easy to slip into the same ways of thinking as these people that he encountered some 2,000 years ago? Jesus is claiming to be God. Perfect sovereignty and perfect compassion, as Reverend March preached a few weeks back. But we look at Jesus time and time again, and at least to ourselves, we think he lacks compassion. He's harsh, and he's harsh toward the wrong people. We're ready to cheer in passages like this morning where he chastises the religious rulers. But we do so because we want to separate this encounter from the ones that have come before We want to act as if Jesus' harshness is for a different cause. And what we're doing is judging him by our own standards. That's what the Jews did. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because in their estimation, not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. What we're doing is judging him by our standards. And when we encounter Jesus, what we should be doing is judging our standards by him. These Jews could not imagine that their standard, their understanding, their expectations were the problem. To them, the problem is clear. It's Jesus. And as they did before, they put him on trial. They demand that he prove his authority. 
Remember back in the temple when they said, give us a sign that shows you have the authority to do this. And since that time, let's be clear, he saved the official son from death and he, heard, he healed a 38-year invalid. Those signs weren't enough because it wasn't about the signs. And so their question remains, who do you think you are? And his answer, that he and the Father are one, by their standard, is a sin worthy of death. Because he, and not their own standard, is what they see as the problem. Now in this passage, Jesus doesn't retreat from the conflict the way he has generally so far in John. He offers a defense as if he's in a courtroom. His authority is the same as his father's. Together, their work, which they are doing, is above the law, of which they're being accused of breaking. Their work is what holds the universe together. And these men already believe that the father is innocent of these types of charges. So what Jesus tells them is that if the father is innocent, so then is the son. And they were wrong in their understanding of Sabbath. We talked about that last week. Jesus doesn't raise that issue here. He lets that go. It's not the focus of this exchange. This defense is not going to be about what I can and can't do on the Sabbath. This is going to be about what I can and can't do because I am Jesus. This is about who Jesus is. And when Jesus explains himself, he explains himself in the context of the Trinity. What Jesus says in this morning's passage is very important for understanding the Trinity. This is not a summary of the Trinity. The Spirit isn't even mentioned here. But this passage lays an important foundation or continues building an important foundation that Jesus has already begun. Kids, think about a sport team, a sports team that has several great players, lots of really, really good athletes. And when the games start, because there's so many people that are good on this team, there are a lot of people who could give instructions, who could give the orders about what play we're going to call or what the team is going to do. But that would be very confusing. And so there's only one person who does give those orders, who does give those instructions. You look at a basketball team, and the power forward might be the best player on the floor, but the point guard is going to call and set up the play. The first baseman might be the all-star and the future Hall of Famer, but the catcher or the shortstop is going to tell everybody on the infield what to do if the batter bunts or if the runner steals. Because in sports, we realize that in a moment, someone has to be in charge. There has to be one person in charge of the moment. And when you put someone in charge, you're not necessarily saying that they're better or that they're more important than everyone else. You're just saying that for now, they're the one in charge. Jesus and the Father are equal. John says so in his prologue, and Jesus said so here. The Heidelberg Catechism says the eternal Son of God, who is and remains true and eternal God, took upon himself true human nature from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary through the working of the Holy Spirit. Thus he is also true seed of David and like his brothers in every respect, yet without sin. The Son in his being is of one substance 
power and eternity with the Father and the Spirit. Jesus is not better or less than the Father or better or less than the Son. Theologians, or than the Spirit. Theologians call this the ontological trinity. Trinity. Ontology is about being, what we're made out of, what we're worth. The Son is made out of the same stuff as the Father. He's just as much God. The Son is worth as much glory and praise as the Father. In that sense, they are one God. No member of the Trinity is better or worse than any other. In their being, they are equal. But what Jesus says here is that like a point guard or a shortstop, or for that matter, a husband or a wife, Each person of the Trinity has a different role to play with different responsibilities. Theologians call this the economic Trinity, not because it's about money, but because it's about activity. It's about what you do. One pastor summarizes the differences this way. It's the father who sends the son into the world for our redemption. It's the son who acquires our redemption for us. It's the spirit who applies that redemption to us. And this is what Jesus means by verse 19. Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. Did you catch that? Jesus, who is fully and eternally God, says he can do nothing of his own accord. He follows, as it were, the acts of the Father. Jesus can heal the sick and the lame. Jesus can bring back people from death. Jesus is the judge of all mankind. But he can do nothing of his own accord. That can't be an ontological statement. It can't be a statement of being. They are equal in their being. Of course, Jesus is powerful enough to do lots of things on his own accord. Jesus is capable enough to do these things of his own accord. So what this must be is an economic statement. Jesus is saying, I can't because that is not my role. I am able, but I do not. Jesus does not just do anything and everything that he's capable of doing. He does what he sees the Father doing. And in verse 20, we learn that the Father has a plan and that he has revealed this plan to his Son. The work Jesus is doing is following the Father's plan, which has been revealed to him. And so it's natural to ask, why? Why does the Son follow the plan? He's also fully God. He doesn't need someone else's plan. He made this world. He is capable of interacting with the world that he made on his own terms. Why does Jesus follow the plan? And if we don't read the next part carefully, we'll gloss over it. And we'll impose on the text the answer we expect to be there rather than the answer that is there. The answer we expect, why does the son do it, is because the son loves the father. 
That's why he obeys him. That's why he submits to his plan, because he loves him. And it's true that the son loves the father. But look carefully at verse 20. It's not what it says. It says, for the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. The father's plan is so focused on his love for the son that even the revealing of that plan is an act of love toward the son. John emphasized that Jesus is God's perfect and complete way of revealing himself to us. This is an act of love for the Son. When God wants to reveal himself to his people, the the most glorious way God can reveal himself is through Jesus, and he bestows that honor on the Son. And in verse 21, it says the Father's greatest work, the greatest work that can be given, is to give life. And how does God the Father always give life in creation and in redemption? Through the Son. These economic distinctions about who does what are all made within this bond of love. They're not fighting. They're not even silently stewing over roles and responsibilities. There's no inevitable power struggle forthcoming. What you have in the Trinity is perfect trust and unbroken fellowship. And the result of perfect trust and unbroken fellowship is that each member of the Godhead delights in the others and in the work that they are doing. They are so united, one God, so united that they know that honor for any of them is honor for all of them. And they are so united in love that they are eager to see one another honored and glorified. And so Jesus has the honor of revealing the Father's mighty works. The honor of revealing the Father's great love. He reveals God himself to us. And that's why when the Father shows the Son this plan in love, this self-glorifying plan through which the entire Godhead is ultimately glorified by all creation through the work of the Son, the Son says, I will do that. I will do what my Father has shown me. Jesus has been performing great miracles, but he says here he'll do even better things. He'll do the greatest thing. He will give life to the dead. And it's no accident that he mentions that here in verse 21 in this conversation. Because the Jews that he's talking to know that that power belongs to God alone. Only God gives life. And Jesus is confronting their subjective standards with his objective reality. And again, we like it when he does this with the religious rulers and the Pharisees. Their assumptions, their standards, their applications, they're all wrong. Put them in their place, Jesus. Hurrah! But then we disconnect these events from the same types of interactions Jesus has been having with people who are a lot more like us. All of us, not just the Pharisees, 
imagine for ourselves what it looks like to live rightly before God. Mary did it. Nicodemus, the woman at the well, on and on. We imagine for ourselves what it looks like to live a life with which God is pleased. And I think we're easily fooled on this front because the Father, in one sense, is so far from us. He's so apart from us. And we get to interpret in that the freedom to develop our own standard of living, our own ideas of how God wants to be worshipped and honored in our families and in our work and in our lives. But then Jesus comes, bringing God near to us. Jesus brings the perfect revelation of the Father right here. He is the exact imprint of his nature, and he's fully man. And through Jesus, we get to see what it actually looks like for a human being to honor the Father in all things. Since all he does is what the Father's doing. And when you look at Jesus, we don't have to guess about which parts we should follow and which parts are too dramatic. We've all been in situations where we're in a group of people And somebody asks everybody in the group to do something. Give your name and address or form a line over here, whatever it is. And we've all had that experience. Maybe we missed the instructions. Maybe we're unclear on what's expected. But the only thing we're certain of is we don't want to go first. We want somebody else to go first. We get very self-conscious. We want to watch somebody else do this first, and then we can use their behavior as a guide for what we're supposed to do. But in some cases, that's really risky, isn't it? What if they didn't hear the instructions? What if they're just making it up as they go, and then we follow them now confidently because we think we know what's happening? Would we have wanted to follow these Jews and their interactions with Jesus? Would we have wanted to follow the invalid after his healing? Those are bad acts to follow. But here, Jesus tells us how safe it is to follow him. Because he only does what the Father is doing. The Father loves the Son. The Father shows the Son all that he's doing. And so the Father loves us. In fact, the Father so loved us, the world, that he sent the Son to reveal to us what he is doing. Jesus is the best act to follow. He is the imprint of the Father. He does what he does. And the Jews want to honor the Father without honoring the Son. They've developed their own standard for what it means to follow God. And when it conflicts with what Jesus has to say and with who Jesus is, they stick with their standard and jettison Jesus. It's a terrible mistake, but it's one that's pretty easy to make. In verses 22 through 24, we see more proof that the Father loves the Son. He gave him the judgment. The final judgment is what will finally bring God honor from all creation. It's the moment when every knee will bow. The most stubborn, God-hating heart 
who has ever lived will at that moment bow to the honor of the triune God. And that's why it's urgent that the Son be heard and believed. He's been given the authority. It's his honor to judge and to execute judgment. And he tells you here upon what standard he will judge the world. By whether or not they received the Son. When he raises the dead from their tombs, it will be undeniable that the Son of Man is Lord of all. Not just mostly undeniable, when all the dead who have ever died are raised from the dead at the word of Jesus, there will be no one denying that he is Lord of all. It uses the title Son of Man, which is one of Jesus' title that emphasizes his role on the day of judgment. And these Jewish leaders have decided by their own standards what it means to honor God. They have some imagination of what the judgment will be and what it will be based on and how they'll be just fine. They have some idea of what God will find acceptable in this life and at the day of judgment. And they say we honor God through our standard. But their standard does not include honoring Jesus. Likewise, today, as one pastor writes, the culture tells people they can believe in anything they want, that we all worship the same God, that we can come to God by any means we choose, and that we can reject Jesus and still have the Father. Or I'd add, reject Jesus and still have our idea of Jesus. And while this happens out there, it also happens in here. Inside churches like this and inside hearts like these. We read Jesus' interactions and we judge them by our standards. We read Jesus' demands and we soften them into something more palatable. We look for others who will affirm the reasonableness of our position in contrast to the extreme views of others. We will do anything we can to justify our standards without ever stopping to ask, am I actually following Jesus? His is the act we must follow because he is the one whom the Father has shown what he is doing. The religious rulers here and elsewhere throughout the Gospels are struggling mightily. They're struggling to preserve a system of life and a system of salvation that does not include Jesus. It's one of their own making. But Jesus is unequivocal. There is no salvation outside of him. Verse 23, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. There's no way around it. Jesus is not a competing God. He's not one among many theological options. He is working and his father is working. And to believe Jesus' words is to believe the one who sent him. The one who, by the way, alone can give life to the dead. And it's ironic, but not surprising, that this saving belief in Jesus' words comes with real benefits Ironic because the religion of the Pharisees could never provide them. We don't go our own way because we're self-destructive. We go our own way because we think the benefits will be better. 
We don't make up our own standards because we want to be angry rebels shaking our fists at God. We make up our own standards because we know what we want and we think we know the way we can get it. One of the reformers, by contrast, said that if we will actually follow Christ, if we will submit our lives entirely to him, though besieged on every side, by faith, Christians do not cease to be calm on this account, that they know they are in perfect safety through the protection of Christ. Kids, many of you have already learned the beginning of the Heidelberg Catechism. It is an incredible thing to memorize, and outside of Scripture, I think it is the most important thing a human being can memorize because it's all based on Scripture. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for my sins with his precious blood. He has set me free from the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. That's the effect of having such a good act to follow. Believing there's such a good act to follow is following <laughs> and all its benefits. Assured of eternal life, we are willing and ready to live for him. We stop living for ourselves. We stop judging the judge. We obey his standard rather than our own. We become more concerned with what God thinks of us than with what we think of him. We do what the son is doing because the only way we will ever find peace on the day of judgment and in this life, the only way we will ever find peace is to do what the son is doing. Because he does what the Father is doing. And he is the only one who can give life. To the glory of our triune God, now and forever. Amen. Let's pray.